Gabby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner in Kansas City, and today I am joined by Chuck Marone, uh, as well as welcoming a new guest on the show, Edward Erfurt, who has recently joined the Strong Towns team as their director of community action. So welcome, Edward. It's great to have you. You are officially on the Upzoned podcast. I think it'd be great to, I guess, learn a little bit about you uh, since this is the first time that we are meeting and learn a little bit about your role at Strong Towns. Well, Abby, thank you for having me. I'm a I'm a super Upzone fan, so I'm really privileged to be on today. I'm new to Strong Towns as a staff member, but not new to the organization. I've been a big fan of Strong Towns since I met Chuck back in 2010, and we've been working on different projects. And he's invited me to talk a couple of times. And also, my beautiful wife is a staff member at Strong Towns, and she's the one that pathfinder that gets Chuck around the world wherever he needs to get. It's a real privilege to be part of part of Strong Towns. So my role is new. It's a new position at Strong Towns. It is really an advancement on all the incredible things that Strong Towns has been writing about, working on, and even the incredible talent of staff. So under Strong Towns, there is a, a page that we have set up which is the Community Action Lab. And under the Action Lab is a couple of different items. The most exciting one that I'm working on right now is the Community Action Lab. This year, there are five communities across North America that Strong Towns will be going on a two-year journey with these communities to bring the best of Strong Towns to their communities to focus with about a group of about 15 people to change the local conversation, to bring all the best of strong towns, to bring it to a community, to talk about it, to study it, and and learn as a group over a year. And then the following year, taking that and putting it into action and coaching those community members to take that into action. That's super exciting. The, The other big project is the Crash Analysis Studio. Or again, Strong Towns is taking a completely different approach to dissect accidents and crashes across the country. And through that, we currently have uh, the crash studios open. We're seeking nominations. So if there's been a crash in your community, we would love for you to submit it online at Strong Towns. And over the next year, we've been provided a grant to go out and study these crashes and to really change the conversation of how we look at accidents um, and change the way that our standard of care is for these, where we're not going to just blame the drivers. We're actually going to look at it in depth with professionals and community residents and citizens to really look and study at what the issues are with these crashes. So I'm, I'm super excited to be part of the team here at Strong Towns. My background is in architecture and planning, so I'm really excited to be able to bring that to the team. 
Wow, that is really, really exciting to hear. I'm curious, have you have you already chosen the towns or in cities that you'll be working in for the, the first role that you mentioned? Yeah, so for the Community Action Labs, we have four communities right now under contract, and we're talking to the fifth to fill out the this year's for the 2023 Community Action Labs. So I can announce that we signed a contract with Lake County, Florida, which is just outside of Orlando for those that aren't familiar with the Florida landscape. We are also, we've been in front of council and we're closing on the contract for Medicine Hat in Alberta, Canada. We are working on Norman, Oklahoma, which goes in front of their council next week. And then we also will be working up uh, just north of where Chuck's at, up in the Iron Range. So we have one more slot open. We're talking to two communities that are right on the cusp of getting this off and going. We hope to have that announced and, and we'll be kicking off all of those in January with these communities. That's awesome. Well, I am looking forward to learning more about what you all learn as you're writing about it. Uh, so today, I, I really invited you into this conversation because you recently wrote an article about parking that I thought was really good. And in honor of the upcoming Black Friday and Strong Towns Black Friday parking event, we're really covering the topic of parking requirements generally and a lot of changes that are happening in the world of parking regulations and zoning codes. Uh, we've got a few articles of note reporting cities that have actually taken steps to eliminate parking minimums, including uh, Burlington, Vermont, as reported by Burlington Free Press, Nashville, Tennessee, as reported by Nashville Scene, and Cambridge, Massachusetts, as reported by the Mass Media. So many of these standards are really, you know, taking these steps to not only reduce these requirements that would make developers provide some, I would say, arbitrary amount of minimum parking based on what they're, what kind of use they're actually putting on the site, but many of these cities are actually looking at establishing parking maximums in addition to that, which would mean that a developer can go as low as they can go with parking, but they can't actually uh, keep going higher on that spectrum and and have that flexibility to keep adding more and more parking on a site. One of the major drivers of this policy, no pun intended, uh, is the need for affordable housing, which I think is really kind of an interesting conversation that we ought to have. People are really recognizing the true cost of housing and its association with, or the true cost of parking and its association with housing, as well as the cost of commercial spaces and the costs of goods generally. There's a little bit of pushback. There obviously are, you know, some residents that are against these kinds of policies. There are also developers that, you know, have have argued that they don't want parking maximums because they really want to be the ones to decide whether or not uh, they have too much parking on their site. And I think it's really interesting to think about the context in which these kinds of standards are presented and, and how you realistically apply these things, which to me, Edward, that was something that I thought you pro provided some nuance to in your recent article 
and thinking about, you know, whether or not it makes sense to provide kind of a blanket policy for these kinds of things, or if this is something that ought to be, you know, phased into certain contexts, and how to really have these kinds of conversations around parking. So I just kind of wanted to start with that and really talk a little bit about that article that you wrote on parking and kind of the perspective that you presented on on really, I guess, phasing these kinds of standards and having these conversations in contexts where it is challenging to unwind the impact of having too much parking. Yeah, it's really hard. I've been in local government for a couple of years now, and to walk into a city and say, hey, we're going to just get rid of parking. Unfortunately, we've trained everybody that we think we have to have so much parking to the point that every car has at least eight spots in, in, a, in a city. And then ordinances, if you look all of the articles that we're looking at today, it's months and years of work just to go through the procedural pieces to change an ordinance and a code. So my experience has been looking at how do we how do we get some easy wins? How, where are the authorities that somebody on the ground might have to provide flexibility when we all know that we're overparked or in conditions where you may be doing a new development adjacent to an existing parking lot that's underutilized? So what I found is that in a lot of the zoning codes, the number is very distinct. It's, it, it, it's, it's clear as day that you have to provide a certain number of parking stalls. And very rarely is there any language in there to provide flexibility. However, where the parking is located may not be defined in the code, or there may be more leeway to it. So simply for some of these first steps is that, have you accounted for parking that may be on street? And there's numerous benefits for on-street parking in walkable areas. Uh, what I found is developers are usually willing to pay for all of their construction in a public right-of-way for on-street parking. So that gets you your uh, street trees, your park bench, you know, their street benches, the sidewalks, all those improvements because they yield parking out of it. Um, there also may be, as I wrote, there may be municipal parking lots or other parking lots that are underutilized that you can get a simple agreement to that if you actually need that much parking, that there is a relief for it and it helps to balance out in the city. Yeah. And I think those are the kinds of really nuanced approaches that are beneficial for places where, you know, maybe they'd like to get rid of these minimum parking standards, but it's almost like a non-starter to bring that conversation forward to start thinking of kind of negotiation, points of negotiation where cities and staff people can start to work with developers to bring some of those counts down. Chuck, can you talk a little bit about where this Black Friday parking campaign came from? And if if this is something that you all have looked at against what the standards of of these, you know, of these cities are. I mean, have you have you compared the sites that you all have posted um, and, and what those standards actually required? Yeah. Like so many 
parts of Strong Towns and so much of what we do, uh, it started out with just me observing the absurdity of the world and saying, you know, this is crazy. I, I remember back in the, in the early 2000s, I would be working for these cities and a developer would come in with a proposal and it had an absurd amount of parking and it still didn't meet the ordinance. I would bring up, others would bring up, like maybe we don't need this much parking. And inevitably, every time a city planner somewhere, a city engineer somewhere, a city council member somewhere would say these exact words, just wait till Black Friday and there's going to be people parking up and down the road. It's going to be a total nightmare. It's going to be chaos. It was always came back to on Black Friday, you're going to be thankful you had that parking. You're going to be so grateful you had it. It might be overkill today. It might be too much today, but boy, we're going to be happy. I feel like there's two things in that. First, note how sensitive we are. Let's say that all of that is true, right? And this one day a year, there's not enough parking spaces and people wind up parking along the side of the road or up the street a little bit or what have you. We are so sensitive to that, that we will over-design, over-build, over-react, over-compensate. We are not sensitive to so many other things, right? Like our city's going broke. Like what does it do to our budget to have all this area that pays no taxes yet is served by utilities? Like we're not sensitive to that in any way. Like we don't care. But we are so hypersensitive to the idea that every parking, every car would not have a place to park, that it makes us do absurd, absurd things. The second thing that came out of these conversations was just my realization that like in most places, we don't use this parking even on Black Friday. I would go out in my, my youngest daughter is born in 2004. And we would have this thing where mom always works. She's a news reporter. She would always work the day after Thanksgiving and I wouldn't. And I would take the kids and I would go out and we would do something fun. We'd go ice skating. We'd go sledding. We'd go out to the mall. Um, what have you. We'd just do something like fun to get out. And every place that I would go, there would be parking all over. And I'm like, I, I started taking pictures and started sharing it. Like, is everybody else seeing this? Like, this is supposedly the busiest parking day of the year. Is anybody else seeing what I'm seeing? And I would just take these pictures of these empty lots. And pretty soon people, you know, as they do in the internet age, would start to tweet them back to me and share them on Facebook back to me. And uh, we just said, you know, hashtag Black Friday parking. This is absurd. And it, it literally started that way. Just a, a social thing where I shared stuff, people shared stuff back with me. And we started to observe this thing together that we had all observed individually. And that is that on the so-called busiest day of the year, there's ridiculous amounts of parking. Why are we building this for the other 364 days? Yeah, well, in hindsight, it's 2020, but just the changes in retail shopping over the past 10 years, I mean, internet, internet shopping has totally you know, flipped that around. And now you know, we're seeing even a lot of retail big box spaces going empty or being used much less frequently than they were before, even, you know, both during Black Friday, but also not during Black Friday. And I think that when you have all of these areas in our country, you know, suburban commercial contexts that 
essentially have been built around this idea that they are a destination that you arrive to by car. They are already in a context that are disconnected from surroundings. It's very difficult, I think, to actually unwind that and to retrofit and unbuild that. And I know there's people who are interested in suburban retrofit and and actually addressing these kinds of issues. But in this context, it's, it's like the idea of getting rid of parking minimums entirely, it seems like that's often a non-starter because it's like already this context that's surrounded by a bunch of other sites that are composed of parking lots. And it's a bunch of cheap greenfields land that isn't going to be taxed very highly anyway. It's very unproductive to the city, but for the actual developer of the site, there's actually no incentive for them to use this space for anything but parking. And so uh, for some reason, things just kind of keep on keeping on regardless of if uh, we, you know, built way too much parking and it's not really even being used productively as surface parking. There's, there's no question when we look, when we step back and we look at parking today, getting rid of parking minimums is like the first step of competency. It's like a, it's like the infant phase of municipal regulation, right? It's, it is not going to solve everything. It will not fix every problem. It will not immediately lead to infill and redevelopment. But if you can't do that, and like as Edward said at the beginning, how many of these places are, you know, two years worth of uh, worth of meetings and public hearings and negotiations so to strike one line mandating something where the data behind the mandate is so absurd and disconnected from reality that it can't even be called a technical analysis. It's got to just be called, you know, this is our what our gut says. If we can't do that minimum amount uh, of fixing of our codes, what hope does your community have to do anything helpful? What hope does your community have to do anything in terms of your zoning reform that needs to be done? So John Anderson once just called it like his minimum level of stupid. Uh, like if you, if you can't cross this threshold, you're not worth my time. That's basically what he said. You know, like I, I'm not going to come and invest in your community. I'm not going to be a developer there. I'm not going to do the things that you need to be done. I'm, I'm not going to be part of it. If you can't cross this minimum threshold of stupid. And I, I kind of feel that way too. You don't have to contemplate every aspect of everything that will ever happen in order to just get rid of your minimum parking requirements. Just stop forcing people to build all this parking. We'll pick up the pieces after that. We'll pick up the shambles after that. We'll try to patch it together after that. Let's do that together. But but show me that you can like put down the bottle and stop drinking. I mean, just do it for a day. Like, Show me you can get sober and then we'll start patching the rest of your life together. I, I feel like that's where we're at with cities and parking minimums is like, I, we've reached rock bottom. I'm ready for rehab. I'm ready for, you know, I, I'm, I'm ready for an intervention. Like, let's do this. And if you can't do that, then what, what are we even talking about? Yeah. And it's unfortunate because there are so many, there's so many little development sites, even in my own city, in my own neighborhood, that it's like 
when you look at, you know, all the ideas that people have for these buildings, it never meets the parking requirement. There's not enough parking. It doesn't exist. And that can be a real barrier to people like John Anderson, people who are small scale developers that would like to do a project and would like to bring a building back to life or build a new building. But they need large sites. You need lots of space for parking. And guess what? If you don't have lots of space for parking, you need to build a parking garage, which is going to cost, uh, what is it these days, $30,000, $40,000 a space. I mean, it's it's really out of control. And if you're spending that much on a parking garage, you need to scale up to be as many units as possible because it doesn't make sense to build a small one. Parking standards, in my mind, really just favor and scale up development. And it further blocks people who are doing small projects out of the market and leaves a lot of small buildings to not be used uh, in cities across the country. Edward, I'm curious, you know, as somebody who has a lot of experience in city government, how would you advise cities and towns and people who work for cities and towns who want to start this conversation to go about doing that? Is this something that um, it makes the most sense to kind of talk with residents about first? Is this something that you would suggest getting elected officials on board with? I mean, what what's your perspective on how to actually start this conversation for cities that aren't quite there yet? Well, it really is an all of the above approach. And I've been in those development review meetings where the, the local pizza shop that everybody that sat around the development review table loved and they were so successful, they wanted to expand into the strip shopping mall under the bay next door. But because they went from a what was a retail space to a restaurant, they had to double the amount of parking. And there was no more places to put in parking. Telling the local pizza shop that everybody loves, that they know that their biggest thing is takeout and the expansion, there's plenty of room in that parking lot. But because the code won't allow them to expand, you have to now tell your favorite pizza shop that they, sorry, um, you can't put more economic development into our city. So I think the approach to that, what I found is sitting around the table, there are a lot of really smart and bright folks working in local government right now. And they're really good at working within the shadows. And a lot of folks talk about when the, within the gray zone of the codes. So I think the first thing is you just have to be rational when you're looking at the interpretation of these codes and, and put a little risk into it. We know that we're overparked. If you look at every one of these big shopping malls, what happens this time of year? They carve out 50 parking spaces and they put up a tree lot. So in the place where they thought they need it, they're, they're encouraging this kind of infill, which, you know, it, it works. There's no problem with that. Um, so first off, if you're, if you're in the trenches, if you're behind the desk, if you're doing a plan review, there's a lot of things that you have the ability to do that have little risk, but huge impact. So look at those interpretations. And then you need to communicate. And if you're making those judgments and you're allowing for some flexibility, you need to share that with the business owner and the developer so they know what was going to kill their project. They need to know that you did that so that they can share that with the elected officials and they can share it with their neighbors and say, you know, if if it wasn't for this flexibility in the parking code, I wouldn't be able to be successful. 
And that starts a conversation where people sit around and say, well, wait a minute, you had to bend the rules to do the right thing. So that gets that kind of conversation. So really it's an all of above approach. And if you have the ability to make changes and, and take a little risk, you should, because we know that uh, reducing the parking on a, on a lot has way more benefits than it does for a downside. Yeah, those are all really good approaches. And I have found just working on zoning codes of cities that that is very much true in an approaching kind of elected officials and residents and having these conversations early and kind of thinking about parking as more of a not only not requiring minimums or, you know, lowering those minimums as much as possible, but where that conversation is, you know, is a non-starter or isn't feasible, having ways of negotiating parking down through credits, through the being able to have parking agreements, um, lowering parking or getting rid of parking requirements entirely for smaller scale uses. I mean, I think if if you have a small scale use that that ought to just, you know, be you you shouldn't have to be expected to provide parking for your site, especially if you have a small site. So I think anything that can be done to favor smaller scale sites and not provide additional burden on those kinds of projects, the better. So with that, Chuck, I'm curious is if there's anything that you know you want to shout out for uh, Black Friday parking. I'm really looking forward to a very special annual Strong Towns event. I'm going to try to find some good Black Friday parking lots uh, to shout out on Twitter. So yeah, I'm just excited about that. It is fun how it's taken on a life of its own. I, I was somewhere a couple of years ago and someone, I was I was having lunch with a group and one person turned to me and they said, you know, there's this there's this thing that uh, people have been doing now called Black Friday parking, where they go out and take photos of parking lots on on Thanksgiving or the day after Thanksgiving and demonstrate how unnecessary this parking is. And I'm sitting there going, yeah, okay, that, that's very interesting. <laughs> um, it's grown beyond us, right? So it's become something that, uh, you know, using the hashtag Black Friday parking to get out there and, and do this. Anybody can participate. If you're going out and going shopping, uh, bring your bring your you know smartphone, take a photo, upload it to your whatever social media you want to use. The, use the hashtag Black Friday Parking, and just point out you know here's there's a lot of excess parking here. Like we don't need all of this, and you will get the haters who come back and say, I remember when I was there and I, I had to drive around for two minutes. Whatever, right? Like whatever. You, we always we get the people now lately who are like, "Why are you doing? It? It's not the busiest shopping day of the year anymore." I'm like, "What is?" And they're like, "Well, it's it's all online now." And I'm like, "You're even making my point more." Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah. 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 So you know, this is uh this is one of those things that anybody can participate in. The more people who do, and the more photos we get, and the more people who are talking about this, obviously. Um, the more churn it gets, the more eyes it reaches, and the more we start to turn this this conversation. And it, it's really important. We get this thing where, from a if if you are like a libertarian free market kind of person, there's a pushback that we get from that group sometimes, which says, "Well, no business owner is going to build more parking than they need." So you know why why are we even doing this at, at all? You know, Chuck, these guys are out building all this parking. If they didn't need it, they wouldn't build it. And the reality is, is 
the closer you get to a small business, the less that is true. The more you get towards a big box like Walmart, Walmart doesn't care, but Walmart just wants tons of parking. Like they'll have three times as much as they need. They don't care. That's kind of their advertisement for their store, first of all. And second of all, it's their competitive edge because the small little neighborhood hardware store can't compete with them on parking. They just can't do it. And if you make parking like the thing they have to compete on, you will always have your economic system lean towards the big, towards the large, towards the franchise, towards the major corporation. Um, this is really a thing about how do we empower small business? How do we allow neighborhood scaled businesses to thrive? How do we allow small businesses to grow and adapt and evolve without putting these massive hurdles in front of them? And ultimately, how do we make it so, not tomorrow, not a year from now, let's talk about in terms of a development pattern evolving over a generation. How does our development pattern evolve over the next generation so that people would have the option if they didn't want to, to, to drive, to, to walk? If, if they didn't want to get in their car or if they only wanted one car or if they wanted to be car free, to actually live that lifestyle in more than just you know, 2% of urbanized areas in this country. Um, that is yeah, a, a reality. So yeah, there is a reality today that you can't live in Kansas City. I can't live in Brainerd, Minnesota, a small town that should be completely walkable. Um, Edward can't live in, in his small town in West Virginia um, with, you know, without having an automobile and in most cases, two automobiles. And that is something that, you know, we can change very easily. The first step of that change is not mandating every place provide a sea of parking whenever they want to do something. I do want to add to that, that there are people who live that way, whether by choice or not by choice. There are people who live in Kansas City and probably, you know, live in your cities too that don't have a car and you know that that's going to be probably a really small uh number of people in any community but i do think it's worth mentioning that there are these people because so often you know even in my own community the the idea of having you know a small four unit building with no parking on site uh, people will come out and say you know you have to have parking because there's no way there would, you know, you're, you'd be able to market that apartment or why would anybody live in an apartment without parking and these people don't exist? They do exist. I think it's, I think it's worth mentioning that because so many communities act like these people don't, don't exist and, and they do. And it's, um, we shouldn't provide parking standards just because most people, you know, have one, two, three cars per household. Well, our, our regulatory process is so sensitive to the person who suffers by having to walk half a block from where they, they park. We, we, are, we are so that and we will put all kinds of burdens on families, on businesses, on everybody else because we're so sensitive to that small imposition. Yet we are completely insensitive 
to the burdens it places on the small business, to the burden it places on business startups, to the burden it places on people who don't own cars or who own one car or families whose budgets are tight and don't want to have to buy two cars just to schlep kids around and be able to do the normal things that you have to do in life. Um, we are so insensitive to that. Like we don't care. And to me, that that doesn't reflect um, reality, right? If we if we poll people, if we talk to people, if we commune with people, we will find very quickly that that that's not where their levels of sensitivity lie. But the regulatory process is so sensitive to that. The regulatory process is not reflecting reality here. That's interesting. Yeah, because the regulatory process is much more conservative in the approach of how you actually craft those types of rules. You're, you know, trying to play devil's advocate when you're writing them and trying to address any little issue that could happen. And so I, I feel like it causes us to be hypersensitive to any little imposition. Uh, we don't want someone to have to, you know, walk two blocks from where they parked, <laughs> um, which is, you know, interesting. I feel like, you know, we can do better than this. The sensitivity of someone who has to walk a block from where they parked is immediate and we can see it, right? Like there's a direct one-to-one -one and we feel like we can solve that because, well, let's just mandate more parking. The, the sensitivities of higher housing costs, lower business startup, uh, less, you know, class mobility, um, all, all the things that these standards create are second order effects, right? They're not immediate. Like I can't say don't require them to build that parking lot and then we'll have five more houses that are going to be 10% overall cheaper in the market. Those are second order effects. And so sometimes it's, it's easy for us to want to solve the simple problem in front of us without pondering the, uh, the, the deeper existential problems that that creates. So I can cut people a little slack, but go back to John Anderson, do the baby step thing to show that you're competent to do that. And then let's work on all the other stuff, right? I mean, that's what Black Friday parking is about. Just take this first step of eliminating your parking minimums, stop building parking, stop subsidizing parking. And at, at the very least, like just let it be and let people figure it out. And that's not the perfect answer, but that gets us closer to an answer. Excellent. We'll leave it there. Um, but before we finish today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we've been up to these days, anything we've been watching, reading, listening to. Chuck, I'm going to hand it off to you because I'm not going to put Edward on the spot for his first <laughs> up zone appearance. <laughs> um, what have you been up to? I, I wanted to make sure I got the title of this book right. Five Days in London, May 1940 by John Lukacs, L-U-K-A-C-S. It was actually not a very long book. It was easy to get through. Well, it was about five days in London. Um, uh, but it is about uh, the days, if you actually saw the movie Churchill, the one that uh, uh, Oldman won the Academy Award for, fantastic movie, just a very good movie. This book was basically written, and I, I don't know if the movie was adapted to that or they just were parallel, but it's it covering the same period of time, basically from the time that Churchill becomes the prime minister, kind of the events that caused that to happen, uh, up to you know the decisions that, that resulted in the Dunkirk uh, evacuation and everything that surrounded that. And the, the, the argument of this author is that 
in the 20th century, this may be the most important five days of the entire century in terms of their overall impact on the trajectory of humanity. Um, I don't know if that's that's quite true. I mean, there's some there's some periods in 1914, obviously, that were very tumultuous that led to World War One. Um, but certainly, you know, as a pivotal moment in history, uh, this shift that England went through from being on the defensive and essentially trying to find a way out of uh, the Second World War, you know, not repeating the First World War and trying to find a settlement with Hitler and and what have you. To actually changing to an, a more aggressive posture, you know, we won't back down. We'll fight them on the beaches. We'll fight them in the, you know, in the fields and all this was a, a massive shift in England, a massive shift in Western Europe, and ultimately a, a massive shift in the trajectory of, of that war and the trajectory of the 20th century. So this is a very good book. I found it an easy read and kind of enjoyable. And then I went and watched the movie again afterward, uh, just gratuitously, and that movie was fantastic as well. Awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, should I start the book or the movie first? Um, well, <laughs> I've been on would, kind of a movie kick. Okay. I would definitely read the book first. Um, and that's just me. Yes. I'm always like, re you know, read the book first. Um, this is one where I and think you be could- be disappointed later at the movie. You won't be disappointed <laughs> in the movie. The movie um, animates some things. I have to say, I watched the movie when it came out years ago. And having read the book now, when I watched the movie again, there were things that I picked up now that I hadn't picked up before. There's a scene towards the end where Churchill goes and addresses his full cabinet. And that scene didn't have the importance when I watched the movie the first time as it did the second time, because now I read about like what a political jujitsu move that was. So, yeah. Hmm. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, Edward, what do you have for us for the down zone today? Well, I am an avid YouTube consumer. And most recently, I've been watching a, a pretty popular YouTuber that does a lot of homesteading. His name's Justin Rhodes. And uh, he's in the middle of a series now of taking his farm that he's on and carving out about a 10 acre farmstead. So he's doing uh, building a homestead in 100 days, which I find absolutely fascinating as somebody that designs and develops cities, uh, because this is kind of how cities start. You find the places that are healthy, that you can grow food on, that can provide you water and sun. So here's a modern person going out and, and building a, a homestead. Um, I also find it really interesting in the self-reliance part of it and just, just the whole stuff. So, um, and it's, you know, it's easy bite-sized chunks because it's a, it's, you know, every, every day over the next hundred days, it'll be about a 25 minute kind of story about this stuff. But yeah, Justin Rhodes and his YouTube channel and working on his little permaculture homestead has been my, uh, my little guilty pleasure over the last couple of weeks. Is, is that the name of the channel? Just the guy? Yeah. Justin Rhodes. Yeah. So, so he, um, he set up a website that is abundant permaculture. Okay. He ended I up see doing, it. Yeah. He ended up doing, he's doing this, this blog is Justin Rhodes and um, he's built an empire. So, you know, everybody has their own little channel. So he has a subscription service like Apple plus and Disney plus he has one that's abundance plus. So if you want to learn how to like butcher a pig, all the way through, from raising it all the way through to having it on your table, um, 
you can go to go to his service and you can watch that. And it, there's a really amazing community of homesteaders that are relearning all these old timey tricks and, and, and ways to kind of survive. And I just, you know, living in the city, I find it fascinating. Yeah, yeah, that I I find it fascinating too. Um, especially because my my garden didn't do very well this year, and I was really <laughs> disappointed about it. <laughs> um, but I actually have some friends that live um up in Colorado that have basically converted their entire lot into a garden, and it's really impressive what you can do with such a small amount of space. Um. So I was curious, you know, how much space he has to work with, because it's just amazing to me that you can have a relatively small amount of green space and have a pretty robust garden uh, and grow quite a bit of food off of it. Yeah, it doesn't take very much land. So, you know, all of the sort of homesteaders or people that are focused on growing their own foods, you just have to, you know, their motto is just plant. And you can start. I I got Michelle for um, Mother's Day. We got her a, a green stock, which is like a vertical planter that's circular, and it has as much area in that little vertical thing that takes up about three square feet that I have out in my yard in my backyard. So you you can grow a lot of food in a small amount of area. Now these guys are on a little bit bigger scale because they have milk cows and pigs and all that stuff, but. Um, yeah, it, it doesn't. It, it's amazing what a couple of tomato plants can do in a backyard. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. I'll have to add them to my YouTube following. I'm not an avid YouTuber, but I do have a list of people that I follow, including Strong Towns. So shout out to Strong Towns. For my down zone, I actually wanted to share that I recently have watched two movies. So the first one being the Elvis movie, which is, you know, biographical, musical drama that is based on the life of Elvis. I feel like I'm just too young. I've never, I'm like not very connected (laughs) to Elvis's music, but it it was really one of the coolest movies that I've seen in a really long time. And I was actually not expecting to like it just because I'm not really into Elvis's music. Um, And I think I'm now into Elvis's music. It was very, very cool. And then right after that, because it reminded me of this movie and I had not seen it since my childhood, I watched Walk the Line, which is about Johnny Cash's life. (laughs) Both movies are really, really good if you're into kind of biographical dramas about, uh, you know, the music industry and these really famous musicians' life. I thought, it, you know, both of them are very good. I think I like the Elvis movie more. Um, really, really sad story. And I had no idea that Elvis had such a hard life. I just, I did not know that. So it actually kind of reminds me of Britney Spears' life for those who are following her situation. Wow. I'm sure the two of you are really following Britney Spears <laughs> and her say, life story. That, that's not where my <laughs> mind went, but that's interesting. Um, <laughs> If you, she's on my TMZ alert, I mean, of course. Oh, really? Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm not following it that closely, but it's there's a lot of similarities, actually. I am a big Elvis fan, and I uh, I have been to Graceland, and I love that movie. I, I thought the movie was very good. You might be interested, Abby, because Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History, I think in season one, he did an episode on Elvis. And- 
oh my gosh. I, I don't know if the episode was on Elvis, but like the 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 whole episode was about Elvis. It was on some deeper thing. I, I can't remember what it was. It was so good. It was so, so good. And it got in a little bit to his um, psychology. And I mean, I, I recognize that we're all, you know, broken human beings in one way or another. Um, but Elvis had some unique challenges in terms of his relationship with his mom, um, his just, you know, his ascendancy to this like superstardom and how it all intersected. And, you know, just the fact that like he couldn't get through certain songs without breaking down um, even later in life. It, it was it was astounding. It was a really, really good episode. I can find that and send it to you. It was um, it was it's well worth listening to. Malcolm Gladwell has this. Yeah, way I'm definitely of, looking that up. Yeah, these deep insights. Um, it it, it might have been the episode about the song "Alleluia," which was also a great episode. Um, that one was about uh, early learners versus late bloomers. And anyway, I'm I'm getting my Malcolm Gladwell episodes mixed up, but season one, I'm pretty sure I'll find it for you. Yeah, find it for me, and I'll I'll. I'll be looking up both of your recommendations. So thanks for that. And we will end it there. So thank you both for joining me today. It's great to meet you, Edward. Welcome to the Strong Towns team. It sounds like you are going to be working on a lot of really cool stuff. So looking forward to learning about that. And thanks everyone for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks. Take care. Let me show you what I'm about to do.